Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will be picking up the text here in Genesis 11, verse 1. We've spent a couple episodes introducing this, talking about the function of this Toledoth here, how it really sets the stage for the nation of Israel to understand uh, what they are headed into, how they got to where they are. Uh, some of that would have been handed down verbally to them, but to have it all written down, it would have been incredible. Keep in mind that they are receiving all of this history here by inspiration from the Lord through Moses as they have left Egypt. So this is the Exodus and it's after the Exodus event. It's while they're in the wilderness. We can't say for sure if they have already committed the sin of unbelief, which will condemn that first generation to die in the wilderness. So they end up extending their, their stay in the wilderness by 40 years. Uh, you know, is it that? Uh, we don't know exactly when that happened or when this this was given, but they have left Egypt already, and this is going to help really put in perspective where the Egyptians came from that ended up being their taskmasters and their, uh, you know, the slave drivers, and also to explain uh, where the people come from in the land that they're going to explore and and scout out and eventually go in and inhabit the land of Canaan. Canaan is a person. Canaan comes from the line of Ham, as we have seen. So now we come to verse 1 of chapter 11, and we read this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Uh, This is really a neutral statement in verse 1, and what we're seeing here is it's not a statement of condemnation, and it makes absolute sense. They came from one family, And in the course of 100 years, give or take, language would not have changed that much. Uh, We talk about English that is 500 years old, and we can understand it. Uh, In fact, the smaller the world grows, quote-unquote, the more languages die out. Here in America, the Navajo language is now a dead language. It's gone out of usage. The issue is not the languages or the lack thereof. This is just a statement. And again, like I said, it makes absolute sense. And this is going to be one where, again, just from an interesting thought exercise, an intellectual exercise here, there are logical reasons against evolution and those types of things. One of the the challenges that, that people come up against when they are trying to hold to a secular and consistent worldview is to explain the origin of languages, all the different languages, and yet we can... You know, I can have a blood transfusion with, uh, you know, with somebody from a different part of the world with whom I don't speak the language. I mean, we're all the same people. Uh, we're, we're still humans. We're one species. We're not, and we're one race. We are the human race. There's only one. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to side trail into that too much, but they don't have a really solid explanation for the, the many, many thousands of languages that are present in the world. Uh, the Bible does have an explanation, and it makes perfect sense when you recognize that all the the world would have spoken one language. Is that the case prior to the flood? 
probably there's no reason for there uh, to be any different languages even prior to the flood, even if there are a billion people or more, several billion people in the world at the time of the flood. Uh, that's really irrelevant because the more, uh, the, the, like we were saying, the, the quote-unquote smaller that the world gets today, the less we have uh, some of the language barriers. I'm not saying the language barriers aren't there, but we're, the, the fringe languages of the small people groups are dying out more and more. And uh, interesting, this whole idea to try and preserve them, from a theological standpoint, uh, it, it, it's, again, another interesting thought exercise because why do we have the languages? Well, we're going to discover that we have these languages because this is really a judgment from God because people are not obeying God. That's a problem. And so he gives these confusion here to force people to go out and obey what he has commanded, which is basically the restatement of the Edenic purpose, which is restated at the end of the flood, you know, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? So we have that, well, how do you fill the earth? Well, you have to go out to the ends of the earth and, and fill it. And that mandate has never been rescinded, uh, even up to this day, which means, you know, if the Lord had decided that the earth was full, he would have stepped in and changed that and you know, that says all sorts of things about the current state of, of the godless and secular people who are saying vainly, proclaiming themselves to be wise. They are showing themselves fools in the words of Scripture. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're chicken littles saying that the sky is falling. We're destroying the earth. We're destroying the environment. It's too populated. No, I'm pretty sure the Lord knows what he's doing. But again, this whole this whole desire to go and preserve languages that have been dead, well, I get it. There's some use to that. And, you know, we have old, very old dead languages, not just here in the United States, Navajo and stuff, but there are ancient languages that we're unearthing in archaeological digs and uh, things like that, Akkadian, you know, all, all of these languages where no one speaks them anymore and they give us insight into the world that once was. Lots of languages have now become dead and more and more are going to do so uh, as the world, again, gets smaller with technology, the language barriers become less and less. But this idea that there is only one language makes perfect sense. And even if there were other languages prior to the flood, which I don't think that there's any reason to argue that there would be, when the flood happens, you have one family that's saved. It's not just one person from this family and one person from this family or whatever. It's one family. It's Noah, his wife and his three sons and their wives, it's eight people all from one family. Well, of course, they're going to speak the same language. And and now we find ourselves probably, again, we've kind of connected all the dots and done some of the, the math. It's probably give or take about 100 years after the floodwaters have received that this event is going to take place. 100 years is not a whole lot of time for language to change. I mean, uh, you know, as I'm recording this, the year is 2023. Go back 100 years, 1923. And, you know, the language has really not changed that much. I mean, we're talking about how we can still understand a vast majority of Elizabethan English. That's from four and 500 years ago. That's still very, very similar to our English. It's not like Middle English or, uh, you know, Low English uh, from a thousand years ago or beyond that. That is very difficult to understand. But even if language in four and 500 years hasn't changed that much, I mean, in the last 100 years, yeah, we've added some new vocabulary, uh, but we have no problem. If you go back, we now have 
technology is old enough that we have recordings of people who were speaking a hundred years ago. We can listen to their speeches and have no issue. So uh, we have no problem with this. It's just a, it's just a neutral statement in verse one. And so that brings us to this then, you know, language is not the issue here. The issue is really a heart issue. And in verses two to four, that's what we see, a heart problem revealed. We read this, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Uh, Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So we have a heart problem that's revealed. Number one, as we look at this in verse two, we have this statement that people migrated east and found a plain in the land of Shinar. Now, This is interesting because what we have is we have, again, that restatement of the Edenic mandate that we referred to earlier, where they are supposed to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. So we know that they're traveling. So this travel here, that's not the problem. The issue is, is rather than continuing on and exploring all the, you know, the far reaches of the earth. Uh, They are choosing to not go very far. You know, we're still basically located not far from, you know, in the the Bible lands. This is all, you know, the Middle East here. And it seems that this is a sizable population. People, it says. People. Probably the majority. You know, some people are obeying, but it seems that most of the people are just agreeing, you know, we're going to do this. And, And they're conspiring together. And it's very fascinating because you have the Edenic mandate, but along with that comes an element of trust. When I go out from a place, I have to trust the God of all creation is bigger than this world, which seems vast to us as human beings. You know, I I go out and I get far away from home and if I were to get stranded and lose my car and you know, whatever, and be out in the wilderness, would I be able to survive? That'd be a little bit panic stricken, right? Well, the whole point is, is it's one thing to have God say that while you're in a comfortable place, but then to leave from that where you have settled and made your home and to go out into the vast unknown, that requires an element of trust and really an element of faith. And what we see here is when people are going out, A, the sin of their heart is being manifest, that there is still a sin nature and depravity there, and we're seeing fear and we're seeing a lack of faith. And again, everyone, each person has to be saved individually. I think this has come up before, if not in in this, then in another uh, podcast that we've done, other books of the Bible. Uh, The faith of the parents is not passed on to the children. They have to be taught to fear God. And it's not automatic just because you come from the right lineage. We don't know much about the spiritual state of Noah's children. 
and we know that it's not merit-based. We know that God chose Abram for no other reason than that God delighted to save him. Abraham hadn't done anything to merit that choice. God had not looked down through the corridors of time and seen that Abraham would be obedient and choose this, and so therefore he rewarded him. No, God chose Abraham. It's, it's a one-way street. And everyone needs to be saved individually. So when you have the majority of people that are walking and now they are fearful, now they're trying to you know reason among themselves and they're doing that apart from the knowledge of the Lord. And they're saying, can we really trust, you know, what, what does it really mean that we need to go to the ends of the earth and fill the earth and subdue it? Now, let's just settle down here. And everybody agrees to that. And so it's really a heart problem that is revealed. Uh, then we see in verse 3 that the people built. Uh, they, it's a long process here. They stop, they make bricks, they burn them thoroughly. These are not temporary shelters. These are going to be more permanent shelters. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. I mean, these are, these are impressive structures, uh, and, and we see that here. And this is really a settlement, not just a building, but it's a settlement. It's a city, and it's the development of society. This really parallels the rise of society that we saw in Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 to 24, with the descendants of Cain. And what we noted back then, and we should make this observation again here, tie it back in, and reiterate it, that society apart from the Lord is dangerous. Society in and of itself is not a morally neutral thing, nor is it a morally good thing, uh, for sure. It, it really is, it's not, it's not great, because you need God, you need his intervention, you need the guidance from on high, his wisdom, and you can't trust in the wisdom of your heart. And so uh, we see this, uh, and, and then we see the sin revealed in verse 4, and this is really where it all comes to a head. Uh, we see kind of this indication of a lack of faith and, and a lack of trust in God as they're stopping and going against what he said. And then we see the heart revealed here in verse 4. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower in the city with its top in the heavens. It's a translation's kind of interesting there. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. And, and that last phrase there really gets to the heart of the matter. They don't want to be dispersed throughout the ends of the earth. They want to stay together, and they think that they have it within their own power. If we just come together with enough people, then God surely is not powerful enough to overrule us. Well, that's kind of a foolish thought. They're only a hundred years after the flood. God has just wiped off the face of the earth millions, if not billions of people who probably thought the same thing. There's no way. Look at how many people there are on the earth. There's no way God is going to just overrule us all. Well, guess what? He did. By the way, that's a really, really important lesson for today. People look at the state of the world and there's 8 billion people and there's no way that all of these people or the majority, the vast majority of them could be wrong. Well, actually, the, the scriptures seem to indicate that the vast majority of them are wrong. Why does the path that leads to destruction? And many there are that are on that. Its end is destruction and few are the people that are on the path that leads to eternal life or to life. Uh, narrow is that path, and, and there are few on that. And so, yes, God has the ability to come in and overthrow uh, millions, if not billions of people, if he so chooses. It also seems to be indicative of the fact that they knew that they were sinning, 
and that they think that in this construction here, as they build a city and then they have this tower, uh, that they could somehow solidify and make their mark on the world. So this is a very, very interesting thing here. We have a conspiracy to sin as a group. It's a conspiracy for group sin. Come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower with its top in the heavens. Uh, like, okay, so, so I said there's debate about that. Uh, top in the location of heaven or the top which is literally heaven. This type of early architecture uh, would be the predecessor to uh, what we know as the pyramids. This would be like a ziggurat uh, from where the inner chamber of deity resides at the top. Could be that. I know uh, John Whitcomb argued uh, that in one of his lectures, very persuasive, and it's, it's, it's quite possible that it seems uh, that this reference to heaven, they're, they're not talking about something that was the tallest structure ever built to mankind, you know, like the Burj Khalif, you know, tower in, in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, I don't think he's talking about that. I think the idea here is with the top heaven is that they think that they can, I mean, this is really the the ultimate expression of idolatry in that day. I mean, this is this is not the God of heaven and earth. This is them creating their own God and fashioning their own paradise and saying, we are the masters of our own destiny. Let us make a name for ourselves. We put this city here. We put a center for worship here. Uh, this, really, this is a temple. And we're going to do this and solidify our own futures. And they recognize what God has commanded them to do, and they're making a group willful decision not to obey, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, why would they be worried about this? Well, it's because God had reiterated the Edenic command in Genesis 9:1, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. This was told to Noah. Noah would have passed it on to his children. They knew God's command, and they were willing to ignore it. Also, this Babel, of which Nimrod became king, has clear connections with Babylon. This is the root of Babylon. This is what becomes Babylon. And so think of its great sin recorded in Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar states, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. And herein, and just by way of you know, an introduction to the topic of Babylon, I want to make one final point and then we'll be done with this episode today. And that's this. We know that this is the very first instance of Babylon. This is, it's, this is how it started. Babel becomes Babylon. And at its core, at its root, Babylon has always stood in opposition to God and his revelation. And it, it comes to be revealed that way later on. I mean, here it's Babel, and the people who established Babel and its eventual king are in rebellion against God. Then it becomes Babylon later on, and we have wicked kings. Well, later on, uh, we know that the, the scripture calls, I believe it's Tyre, and then even uh, Nineveh are called Babylon in scripture. And so we have other cities that are called Babylon, and then we even have Revelation naming a city Babylon. Whether or not it's this exact Babylon or something different, it seems that Babylon in Scripture is synonymous with rebellion against God. And honestly, that should make a lot of sense because its very inception, it was formed in the process of rebellion. 
and ever since then, it has stood for rebellion against God. So the people who dwell in the city of Babylon, the people who travel to Babylon, the people who desire to see Babylon succeed are really declaring themselves at enmity with God and have been throughout all of human history ever since Babel was first founded. So very, very fascinating. And as we see that here in verses two to four, what we recognize is it's not, there's nothing sinful about a city in and of itself. This particular city though, it reveals a, a gross problem, and that is a major heart problem that is still persistent after the flood. That is sin and rebellion, and that's the issue. The issue is not that languages are inherently evil. It's not that speaking one language is inherently evil. It's none of those things. It's the fact that everything that was done was done out of rebellion. We'll end our episode there, and we'll pick it up in verse 5 next time. This has been another podcast of expositional excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.